Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church podcast. Riverbend Church exists to lead all people to know, love, and live new life in Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this message. Today, we're diving into a series called The Time Is Now. And I brought my, listen, I'm gonna annoy you today with that all morning long, all right? So get ready for it. But we're diving into a series that's gonna take us through the tiny book in the Bible called Haggai. And so if you wanna find that in your Bible or cheat, get on your Bible app, whatever you wanna do. But as I thought about this, uh, this, this vision that God's been stirring in my heart really all year, and I thought about how the book of Haggai kind of com- lines up with our lives. The Lord brought an old school alarm clock to mine, which I haven't used in a lot of years. In fact, I, I'm, I've never used one exactly like this, but I like it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to think I'm going to slip in uh, one night and put this beside Courtney's uh, table on her side of the bed and turn that joker on for like 4 a.m. That'll be a good wake up call, right? But... <clears throat> The reason that, that God really brought this to mind, it was crazy, I was thinking about it and I saw a picture of an alarm clock, it's because it has two bells on it. And it's just like this series, because I wanna lay out kind of the vision that God's given us for the next uh, you know, 18 months or so as a church, like tangible things, next steps we're going after. But the two bells represent two different things. See, one is the church bell. One is like, you know, the time is now, there's an urgency about the things we're supposed to do as a church. But you know what the other bell is? That's for you, big boy. Like, that's yours. The other side is for you. I think through this, God wants to ring the bell of urgency on things as a church, but also in our personal lives, when we walk through Haggai, there's, God's kind of going to ring it. So it's kind of back and forth, ringing both bells today. That's what we're doing, both of it. So as we walk through, I'm asking the Lord to just let the Spirit of God speak to us and encourage us, light a fire in our hearts as we walk through this. So if you don't know where Haggai is in the Bible, it's after the book of Zephaniah. Does that help? Or it's before Zechariah. You're like, man, if it's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts, I'm not sure where it is. Listen, that's all right. If you've never studied this book, that's okay. But uh, it's so short and you're going, Joe, I'm looking at this in the pages. How in the world are you going to spend so much time on it? I'm telling you, it's rich. God's word is rich. It's such a powerful little book. So Haggai, let me tell you a little bit about Haggai. He was what we call a minor prophet. And a lot of times in scripture, just how you can identify them, their books are a lot shorter. Their ministries were a little shorter. As opposed to a guy like Isaiah. Isaiah wrote a lot. He ministered to God's people over a long period of time. Haggai's ministry, I'm not saying it wasn't longer than this, the period that he writes about is only about four months long. And so the period that we're gonna read about over the next four weeks, it was four months of Haggai's life. So relatively a short time. And so he was considered a minor prophet, but it was a strong word. Now, let me, let me set up the historical scene. Because if you're not like a you know, big Bible study person or especially Old Testament where you learn about the people of Israel, that's okay. Because I've had to study it a lot too to try to understand over my years of studying scripture because I wanna know. But the people of Israel, God's people, Around 1000 BC, Solomon became their king. And this is one of the first times that they were actually united under a king. Up until then, they kind of operated as tribes and God was like their leader. Well, they got a king named King David. His son Solomon takes over. And one of the uh, things that Solomon did that no one else had ever done, he built a temple. And to say that it was magnificent, you can go read about this, but to read about the temple, it was basically 
fine jewels and gold, and it was hammered by the best craftsmen, and they built this magnificent, massive worship temple for God. And so there was a short time of peace, but around 1000 BC, almost immediately when Solomon became king, people started sinning against God. And you can read about this, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles in the Bible. What happened is there were a lot of corrupt kings and the people of God began to sin and they begin to fall. And you know, about 400 years later, God finally got so upset with his people. He wanted them to bring them back, but they wouldn't come. So he turned loose of them. And what happened is this Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar, he came in 400 years later. He killed a lot of the Israelites. He took others away into captivity. One of those guys is named Daniel. If you've heard that Bible, they took him away into captivity uh, at that point. Also, they, they knocked down the city walls around Jerusalem. You remember a little bit later, this guy Nehemiah is gonna come back and rebuild the walls. Well, Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the city. He burned everything. He decimated the temple. They, they took this magnificent, beautiful temple. They stole all the gold, stole all the riches out of the temple and destroyed everything. So imagine a city that's been completely destroyed and burned with fire. That's what had happened. And all of the people exiled. So 70 years later, you fast forward down the timeline, about 70 years later, uh, the Persians actually came in and defeated the Babylonians. And so kind of a new king came to power. His name was King Darius. And so King Darius was a lot nicer to the people of God. He actually allowed them to begin to return to Jerusalem. And so I just set about 600 years of history right there for you as we walk into this, but they, they get back home. King Darius allows under his rule some people to go back to Jerusalem and they get there and here's what they find. Their walls are down. They've been down for 60 years, 70 years. Their temple that they remembered when they were kids. Look, some of these guys are older now. These women, men are older. And so they remember this magnificent temple and it's destroyed. It's burned to the ground. There's nothing left. All of their houses burned with fire and also memories of people that were killed and slaughtered there under the Babylonian rule. That's what they go back to when they get home. You know what they do? As soon as they get back, they start rebuilding that temple. They didn't have any money. They didn't have a lot of stuff. They just band together and pick up basically the rubble they can. And they start rebuilding the temple. This is around 500, uh, 536 AD. They got home in 538. 536, they started to rebuild. But do you know what happens? Just like many of us, when you get a fire in your heart for something, God finally releases you from something and you go after it. After a little while, they got discouraged. And we don't know exactly what it was. I'll give you some speculations, but they stopped building the temple. The foundation, after two years, all they had gotten done is basically they poured the retaining walls, Jeff. That's all they had done, that, just in your language. That way you can understand it. They poured the retaining walls. Have you ever seen somebody... And uh, during the pandemic, there was a lot of this. They would pour the retaining walls and like foundation of their house. And then it had to sit for a while. And it was just grass growing up everywhere around it because lumber went so high. That's kind of the idea of what happened at the temple. The walls were there and every day they walked by and they got discouraged and they just kind of gave up. So enter Haggai. He comes into the story. And so 520 AD, he comes on the scene. And I believe he's not only speaking to the people in 520 uh, 520 BC, sorry, he's also speaking to us. And here's why. We live in a day where we have the gospel of Jesus. I mean, the good news that Jesus loves us, that God sent him to die for us and he'll forgive us and he'll give us new life. And yet we live in a city, we live in neighborhoods where people's lives are broken down by tragedy, broken down by sin. People live burned lives by the failures of others and the things they've been through. People live burdened and live with real fears. You look at the tragedies in our streets and in our schools, and no wonder we live this way. We need the words of Haggai 
to stir the urgency in our heart for the gospel again. So the title of today's message is this, Let's Get Urgent. Pick up with me in verse 1, chapter 1. In fact, it says, On August 29th of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave a message uh, through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. You try to pronounce these names, all right? Governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so I, I found something interesting in this first verse. God spoke to the governor and the pastor, and they came together united. Listen, when God get a hold of the people leading government and God gets, when they get united, watch out for what's about to happen in a city. But here's what's happening right here. God brings the governor and the preacher, the, the priest together at the same time. And uh, here's the problem though. Zerubbabel, he had a pretty broken down city. I mean, he was the governor, but there wasn't much to govern at that point. And then Jeshua, he had a, a foundation and they built an altar out there on the foundation, basically a slab. Come over here to the slab and we're gonna worship the Lord. That's what they had at that point. And so verse two says this, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. And that's kind of how this entire book refers to the Lord. It's a reminder that he is the, the head honcho over all the universe. He is the Lord of all the armies of heaven. It says, the people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, I want to point out something here. All throughout scripture, God says, my people have been disobedient. You, my people, you're not listening to me. Or my people are prosperous because they've been obedient to me. Do you notice what God says here? He says, the people. Let me give you, let me, let me help you understand this. When my kids were little, uh, mine and Courtney's kids were little, I'd get home and they'd had a really bad day and they'd been just awful. And I'd get home and Courtney said, do you want me to tell you what your kids did today? And I'm going, hey, I think it takes two to, you know what I mean? Like, do you want me to tell you what your kids did today? This is kind of God's version of that. He's like, the people. He's talking about the Israelites. That's the people of God. But it's, listen, I, I looked into the original language. You know what it means? He said, the people, not my people. He said, the people are saying, and then God's, God's kind of air quoting here. So if you can imagine the Lord up here saying, the people are saying the time has not come yet to build the temple. And I thought about it. No doubt these captives, they were captivity for almost 70 years. They probably prayed, God, release us from being slaves in bondage to the Babylonians. Lord, send us back home. God, we want to go home. Will you just answer our prayer? And so he finally answers it. But then after only two years of rebuilding, they give up again. And here's the excuse they give. God, the time isn't now to rebuild your temple. There's a few excuses that Bible historians speculate as to why they really stopped building the temple. One could be they were just lazy. After two years, they didn't see that they were getting anywhere. Pro, you know, progress was too slow. They're like, we barely got the walls poured. Uh, we can't build anymore on this temple, so they gave up. Also, we do know that they were selfish because what you're gonna find out is God accuses them of building their own luxurious houses while his house lies in ruins. And so selfish. Also, adversity is another one. And you kind of read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and get a picture of this. But if you remember, if you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, the walls were down and enemies kept trying to attack them from the outside. At this point, they're trying to rebuild, but it's thought that maybe adversity was a real excuse where they're like, God, it's not time. There's no wall yet. Maybe they thought we need Nehemiah to come build the wall first, somebody to build this wall so that we'll be protected. And then also uh, there's another uh, theory as to why they said the time is not now. And it comes down to them misinterpreting an Old Testament prophecy. 
Because God had actually told them that the temple would be rebuilt after 70 years. And so they miscalculated the years and therefore were saying, like, God, it's not time. We'll start three years from now or four years from now. Whatever the reason, though, here's what happened. They lost their sense of urgency. Do you know what Haggai is? If you want to know what the book of Haggai is, it's God sounding the alarm through this guy saying, hey, wake up. You know what he's saying to us, church? We've seen a lot of amazing thing happens, things happen. What if the Holy Spirit of God wants to ring this in our soul today? Just say, hey, there's still some things yet to go. Some best days that are still ahead today. So let's continue the story. Look at verse three. Then the Lord sent this message. So God said, the people are saying it's not time to build. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is not about God coming down on people for having nice things. It's a priority. It's, it's a misplacement of priorities. He said, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. And so the old temple in the Old Testament, you know what it represented? The place of God's worship. And we know in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians tells us this, that guess where that temple is now? It's you and me. We became the temple. When Jesus died, rose, and poured out the Spirit, there is no building that's more sacred than another. This is just a building until God's people walk into it, by the way. There is nothing inherently sacred about the grounds that you drive onto. Where the temple is today, it, God lives inside of those who have said yes to Jesus. But here's the thing. God was saying, hey, you're paying more attention to your own houses, and you're not worried about my temple. And then God says this, Consider your ways. Look what's happening to you. And what he's getting at, you're walking through some pain and you're overlooking the reason why I'm allowing you to walk through pain. Here again, it's God almost going, hey, you're going through some stuff and you're so crazy. It's like trying to live your life while this is going off the whole time and God's going, hello, hello, like I'm trying to get your attention. That's what's happening here. And then God goes on to explain verse six. Look at it. He says, you planted much, but you harvest little. Let me translate. You worked so hard to get your fields ready and you did everything right and you poured it all out, but you barely got any crop to provide for your family. You eat, but are not satisfied. That's just called a middle school boy, by the way, right there. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. I, I was uh, poking fun at Ashley, who works in our front office, because it doesn't matter if it's 95 degrees in here, she's putting on more coats in the office. I was like, that's you, Ashley, you, you, you can't keep warm. But anybody like that, like it, no matter where you go, it's cold. You got to have, that's it. You put on clothes, but you cannot. Maybe the Lord today is just going, hey, trying to speak to you. Um, you put on clothes, but can't keep warm. Your wages disappear. You ever felt like that? Like you put them in pockets filled with holes? You ever feel like you're trying to earn money and you're trying to do good and I'm trying to get my budget together, but it's like you're putting your money in, in, in pockets with holes? Well, here's what God was getting at. Because of how you've been living, I've allowed some hard things to come into your life. Doesn't that paint a little bit of picture, a different picture of God than what we see or what we sense a lot of times? Here's what he says. He continues on, verse seven. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Here's God. He says, look at what's happening to you again. Consider your ways. Stop overlooking the obvious. And then he says this, three really simple instructions. Now, Go up to the hills, bring down the timber, and rebuild my house. God's given them this simple step-by-step -step process. We complicate obedience. We, got, we have these excuses sometimes about why we can't do for the Lord or why we can't step. And God goes, let me tell you how simple it is, guys. I want you to 
get out of your house, go up there on the hills, step one. Bring down the timber, step two, rebuild my house, step three. And so God continues to kind of tell them, hey, I'm sounding the alarm, but you're not hearing me. Verse nine, you hope for rich harvest, but they were poor. When you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Now look at this. Here's God taking, taking ownership for the fact that their crops are not producing. Why? Because my house lies in ruins. Let me translate what he means. He's saying, you stopped caring about me. You stopped putting me first. And so I've allowed hard things. And here's what it says. Uh, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own houses, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought. Look at this. Doesn't this paint just a little bit different picture of God for you? I called for a drought on your fields. He's talking about to the people he loves. He's not talking about people that are far from him and reject him and blaspheme. He's talking to the people he loves, the people of Israel. He said, I called for a drought on your land, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin all that you have worked so hard to get. You know what God's saying here? You've been working against me and because I love you too much to let you keep working against me, I'm gonna start working against you a little bit to get your attention. And so I thought about it as I was reading through this. We as his people today are so much like the Israelites living in this time. See, it's easy to hate on people. I did the math almost to the month if you line it up. 2,542 years ago. It's easy to hate on people in the past and go, how dare they not put God first? But I found myself in the story and God was like, hey, remember those bells? Joe, one's for you. Don't just get all hung up on the vision that you wanna give to the church. That'd be easy. I wanna say something to you about your priorities and about what you're living urgent, about what you really put first in your life. And I wanna tell you there's some things as a church we need to be urgent about. And so as we look back through this for just a few moments, I want to give you a few observations. Urgency observations. I put these in your notes if you want to take notes. Here's the first one. According to the scripture in Haggai, God will call our spiritual bluffs. He said, the people are saying it's not time to build my house. They made it sound really spiritual. They, made, they, all, they probably had a Bible verse for it. They actually did if they used the, the misinterpreted prophecy. Taking scripture out of context, God calls spiritual bluffs. Eventually he does. He may let you go for a long time pretending to be one thing, telling everybody you're one thing, but then eventually God, God loves you too much to let you go down that road forever. He'll eventually call your spiritual bluff and say, hey, I see you. You ever been in a bad situation before? I remember this happened a lot in school for me. God, if you'll just get me out of this, Lord, I just need an A on this test. I know I didn't study, God, but I just need an A on this test, God. Will you help me? Lord, if you will help me, I promise I'm not saying any more bad words. I'm gonna quit dipping. God, I ain't, I'm gonna change my friends. Like, I, I was promising God all kind of stuff. Listen, judge me if you want. I'm telling God all kind of stuff. I ain't gonna do it anymore. I'm telling, and then guess what? If I did bad, you know, it's like, well, God don't love me. And then every now and then you pull out one where it's like Scantron, you know, you just randomly and you get like a passing grade and you're like, whoa, you know, not encouraging that students, just saying it may or may not have happened in my own life. 
But listen, you ever been praying before and you ask God to do something in your life and Lord, I, I just need you right now and I promise God, I'll even be a missionary, Jesus, if you'll just do this in my life and then what happens? God will call your bluff because he'll answer that prayer and then go, okay, your turn. And we're like, well, God, see what had happened was the time is not right now, Lord. The time is coming, God, where I, I promise I, I'm going I'm to be obedient to you and Lord, I, the time is not now. And here's God going... You ever been in a, a, a situation where you say, God, I'm, I would literally just in worship, Lord, I would give everything that I have up for you, Lord. But then he calls your bluff on it and says, okay, let me give you an opportunity. You're like, well, Lord, not right now, God. See, maybe the bluff is this. You can have everybody else spooled, uh, fooled in your spirituality because we're all really good at fooling people. But you know who you can't fool? God. I remember in school, uh, you know, I went, grew up in church. And so if you didn't grow up in church, you didn't have to deal with this. But I did growing up in church. I remember guys who would spiritually bluff in order to get with a hot girl that was, you know, in church. But the problem was, uh, in your teenage years, by the way, it, it, the problem was if she was the real deal, eventually she was going to call your bluff. She's going to, like, turn your Bible to Matthew, and you don't know where it is. And you're like, shoot. You know, she's going to call you out at some point in time. But here's the deal. The people had stopped building the temple with urgency, and guess what they had done? They started focusing on their own kingdoms. Don't we do this so often? God, we love you. Lord, we'll, we'll do anything for you. God, you just name it. We'll do anything. Well, Lord, you want me to rearrange my priorities and my schedule for you, though? Like, that's what you want? Let me give you another observation as I walk through this. Seems what, to be what God is saying. We can build God's kingdom or our own but not both. Now, I already know in your mind you're forming an argument against me. You're going, hang on, Joe. You're telling me that I can't do good for myself and serve the Lord. That's not what I said. You get to choose one kingdom or the other to build. You, you can't, I've, I've tried to argue with God on this myself. God, isn't it okay if I just build some Joe kingdom as long as I'm building your kingdom? But I want to show you some scriptures that speak really, really plainly to this idea. We can either build God's kingdom or we can build our kingdom, but we can't build both. And so you could argue that if you pour yourself out for the advancement of the kingdom of God, there will be blessings in your own life. True, we see that, we sense that. But look at this verse. Jesus spoke this in Matthew. He said, wherever your treasure is, so whatever you value most, and you, you can't value multiple things most, there has to be something you value most. Wherever the treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also, look a couple of verses later here. He says this, no one can serve two masters. Let me translate this for us. Nobody can build two kingdoms. This is, listen, I know, listen, I know God was doing this to me. I know if it hurts a little bit, and I know if you want to make an argument in your mind, listen, I'm okay. I'm still arguing with God on some of it, but you have to decide who do I serve. Am I here for the purpose of making Jesus Christ known and building his kingdom, or am I here to enjoy my life and build my kingdom? Now, you can argue that if you build God's kingdom, you'll have the most peace and the most anointing on your life and the most joy and, and satisfaction that you've ever had before. That's what I would argue. But here's what Jesus said. You can't serve two. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money, or you could actually put it, be enslaved to any, anyone else or anything else in your life. And so you have to decide what it really boils down to. What is priority? What is the urgent priority in my life? 
when you look back on your life right now, some of you like me, I mean, we've raised our kids and you look back on your life. What do you wish you had done better? What do you wish, especially when it comes to kingdom matters, what do you wish you could say I did? And then how is that gonna impact you in the next 20 years? What is most important to you? If you're raising kids right now, think about it. What do you want them to know most? I think a lot of times we think we're teaching one thing, but we've really allowed other people to be raising our kids and teaching them what matters most to you. Do you know what I've learned in my life? Satan loves cruise control. God wants us to keep our foot on the gas pedal. See, I never, I never use cruise control. And you go, you're just stubborn. Yeah, I am. I like to be in control. I like to be driving the car. Like I want to be on now. Can you get more speeding tickets? Maybe or maybe not. We'll talk about that later. But keeping your foot on the gas. Satan loves it when we click cruise control and disengage our minds and hearts from what's going on. Kind of this is the Lord going to the Israelites. You got to keep your foot on the gas. Now I saw something else here. Look at verse six again. You planted much, harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. And then in verse 11, God says this, I called for a drought to strip away all the blessing. Why? So you may remember me again if you look at it. Let me give you this observation, the third one. Could it be, and it's just a question, could it be that some of our physical frustrations are caused by spiritual blind spots? Think on that for a moment. Could it be that some of the walls that you're hitting in your life right now where you're going, God, why are you not coming through? Lord, I'm working so hard. And I, could it be that some of those things are caused by places where you have a spiritual blind spot? See, we know that God is good, that his grace is for us. We know uh, as we live, though, in sin, as we say, God, you know, I, I, I kind of know in my heart what you wanted me to do. I know there's some areas you want to work on, but we kind of turn away from that. What happens is we get a blind spot or a callus in our life. And so God is showing us in the book of Haggai, he loves us so much that he will send pain to draw you back to him. Now, I need to take a time out right here. I'm not saying in any way that every time you go through something, that when you get a bad diagnosis at the doctor, when you lose somebody, listen, scripturally, you can't even make an argument for the fact that every time that's God wanting to cause pain in your life. We live in sin and brokenness. And so I'm gonna argue that probably most of the time, the pain we go through, it's just the brokenness of our world. But here in Haggai, God is showing us that he loves us so much that he will allow pain in to show us our blind spots. Could it be some of the frustrations we live with or because of the blind spots? What do you mean, Joe? I mean, you keep settling for the wrong relationship in your life, even when you know it's not God's will because there's a blind spot and then there's a lot of pain that goes with it. We live out our, you know, in, in culturally, even as believers, instead of letting God's word, word inform us on how we live in our relationships, on our sexuality, on our identity, instead of doing that, we live how we feel. And here's what happens. It doesn't mean that you can't be a follower of Jesus and still try to live in your feelings, but there's pain to it. It's God wanting to call you back. Listen, let me give you a verse. It's a difficult verse, but you'll understand the love in it when you read it, I think. Proverbs 3, 12. The Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. I wonder if this is the part that was for you this morning. 
I wonder if there's a blind spot in your life, you've been overlooking it, and God wanted to use the book of Haggai just to go, do you know that pain you've been walking through? It's me trying to get your attention because I love you. See, when God does send pain in our life, it's never to destroy us. Scripturally, Romans 8, he is always working everything together for our good. So he's never gonna send something to destroy us. He sends things to get our attention and say, hey, come to me, come back to me. For those of you that know me, but you're not fully surrendered to me, hey, the alarm clock is saying, hey, surrender all to me. I'm calling your bluff. Come to me. We need an urgency resurgence of knowing God's will and living by his word. And maybe that alarm clock is for you and me today. I've learned this. I can either choose the pain of obedience in my life or I get to choose the difficult pain of God's discipline in my life. The pain of obedience brings a blessing. Now, it's not always easy, but it's always an easy life, but it's an easy soul that comes with that. And let me give you another observation here. According to the scripture, obedience is usually simpler than we'd like to admit, even if it's not easy. I'm not pretending to say that it's easy to do what God wants you and I to do in our world. It's easier not to, but it's not complicated. It's usually really simple. It's a, hey, I know God what you say, and I either got to decide I'm going to put my feet in it or I'm not. That's what it comes down to a lot of times for me. Maybe there's some complicated matters, but usually it's really simple. God, I'll either obey you or I won't obey you. We like to complicate matters, but obedience is usually simple. Look, look what God said again. After all the kind of, hey, you need to wake up, you got spiritual blind spots, God gives them three easy steps and it's very tangible. He says this, go to the hills. What does that mean? Get out of your house and go up there. I've already grown the timber on top of the hills. I'm not even gonna charge you for it. Just go cut down the trees up on the hills. Bring down the timber, rebuild my house. Then I'm gonna take pleasure and be honored, says the Lord. Three simple steps. So the question is, what is something that you know God has called you to do, but you've been holding back on it? Before I lay out what I think God's called us to do as a church, I gotta ask you to look in your heart is there an area of secret, secret sin where you've been holding on and the Lord's going, hey, I love you too much to let you stay in it. Yes, at the cross, there's forgiveness, but also he calls us to holiness. Remember, his kindness calls us to repentance. He wants us to live a sanctified life day by day, chasing after Jesus, looking more like him day by day. And so maybe the alarm clock for you is this God going, hey, that secret that you've been holding on to, I wanna deal with you on that first before we move into this vision for the church. Maybe it's something that you know that God has called you to do, but you've just been pushing back saying, you didn't tell God no. You just told God, look, the, the time is not, time's not now. What if the Lord today called you? You didn't even know he was doing this, but he called you right here to go, the time is now. You know you need to make a move, a change. You know you need to surrender that area of your life. You know I'm asking you to do something. You know maybe even an old thought where God planted it in you a long time ago and he's stirring it up in you again now and he's going, Remember when you told me the time wasn't now? I'm telling you, the time is now. Let me give you the last observation to hear. It is possible to let life beat the kingdom urgency out of you. See, I don't think that the people of Israel in Haggai's time decided one day that, you know what, God, we don't like you anymore. We don't wanna worship you anymore. 
And so we're just gonna go do our own thing. I don't, that's not even how it works in our life. It, it comes through discouragement. You let a few discouragements come your way and you can be fired up for the name of Jesus. Let a few discouragements come your way. And next thing you know, you slowly start drifting. We start asking God, where are you? Disappointments. You planned on God coming through for you in the way you thought he should. You've been praying for something and it didn't happen. And what happens is little by little, God's still at work, but you stop feeling his work and you stop seeing it and you stop believing. And so this disappointment, sometimes it's like, God, you're working too slow and we take things in our own hands. Or it could just be attack. Maybe you've been beaten up. Maybe the life that's been beaten out of you, that urgency has been beaten out of you, it's just suffering. It's pain. It may not even be that you're being punished by God. It could just be the brokenness of the world is beating you up so much that you gave up on Jesus. You gave up on following him, on seeking him. You gave up on church. You gave up on, on even wanting to know him. So this is our reminder today that intentions won't get you where you need to go, but actions will. You've got to decide, God, I've got to get urgent in my heart again to come back to you. See, it could be that the Lord has allowed you to be where you are. And what's happening right now is there's an alarm clock in your life. And God said, you used to be urgent about the things that mattered, but you've lost your way. So let me ask you this. Is the Holy Spirit sounding alarm clock in your heart right now. And you know, it's time to forgive somebody you haven't forgiven. It's time to get back to work and use your gifts again. It's time to stand up for what you, uh, what you know is right as far as sharing the name of Jesus and living a life that's holy. It's time to deal. Listen, this alarm clock in your life, you know what it could be? That secret sin that's been plaguing you, that thing that's drawing you back towards that addiction, the Holy Spirit right now is sounding this alarm in your life and saying, the time is now, come back to me. Get back on mission and vision. Get some vision in your life again. It's time for you to live with urgency. You have friends who need Christ. You have a neighborhood who needs to see a picture of what the love of Jesus looks like, but you haven't been living it. So the Lord today is sending me an alarm clock. Or maybe you're just made hyper aware that what you've been going through, the pain you've been walking through, it's just the Lord saying, hey, it's me. It's my grace and it's my love and I wanna call you back to me today. Will you come back to me today? And so if you feel like you hear that alarm clock going off in your soul right now, what do you do? I wanna ask you, will you pray with me? Will you just open your heart and hands to the Lord and just repeat after me today? Say, Jesus, I hear the alarm clock sounding in my heart. And I'm ready to come to you in full surrender. And maybe you're coming back to him in full surrender. You say, I'm coming back to you in full surrender today, Lord. And then just ask him, will you stir an urgency in my heart to obey you, to do the things that are right, to follow your word? And just tell him, God, here I am. I'm ready for you to be the Lord. And then ask him, say, Lord, will you do some big things through my life? Will you build your kingdom through my life? Listen, if you prayed that prayer with me today, know that I'm praying for you right now. There's a church that loves you. You matter. You may feel insignificant. Maybe the alarm clock today that's going off is just God reminding you that you matter in this world. You matter. And if God is stirring an urgency in the mission and vision, listen, we want you to be a part of it right here at Gainesville if you're here. But wherever your church is, let the Lord stir an urgency to get back after it. Our time is short. People need hope. People need Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church Podcast. 
learn more about who we are as a church and how to connect, you can head over to our website, riverbendchurch.life.